You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source. The key of imagination. Your admission. Access to the enlightened dimension. A gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux. Only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come. Testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow podcast. I am your host, Eben Britton. It's great to be with you guys this afternoon. I hope you guys are hanging tough out there. Uh, I mean, what can we say? <laughs> the world is, is mad. It's a mad, 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 mad world out there. Um, did we need coronavirus to show us that? For some of us, yes. But that's okay. Because these veils continue to fall. The veils of perception. So, here we are. I've been talking about this for a while. Um, I just finished reading this book called Power vs. Force, The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior, written by Dr. David R. Hawkins. And I have to say it's probably my favorite book I've ever read uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so in this podcast episode, I wanted to share with you some of the, the really beautiful insights that come through this text. Uh, Dr. David Hawkins, you can look him up. He was the director of the Institute for Spiritual Research Incorporated in Sedona, Arizona. He remains a widely known authority within the field of consciousness research even after his death in 2012. He wrote and taught from the unique perspective of an experienced clinician, scientist, and teacher, having been a life member of the American Psychiatric Association with 50 years of clinical experience. His background and research is outlined in Who's Who in America and Who's Who in the World. He was honored worldwide with many titles and had been knighted and honored in the East with the title Tai Ryung Sun Kak Tosa, which means foremost teacher of the way to enlightenment. Dr. Hawkins lectured widely at universities and also to spiritual groups from Westminster Abbey and Notre Dame to Catholic, Protestant, and Buddhist monasteries. His life was devoted to the upliftment of mankind, and that very much comes through in the, in the words of this book. So what is this book about? I can't really begin to say that in this podcast I'm going to leave you with everything that this book holds. What I'd like to do in the next 45 minutes to an hour is give you cliff notes that will inspire you to go and read this book. I highly recommend you read it. This is a book that I'm going to read over and over again. It's got references and resources in it that you can come back to over and over again uh, for insight, for information, as a research 
context. Um, there's just so much incredible information in this book that I just highly recommend it for anyone who's, who's interested in a greater understanding of our consciousness, a greater understanding of something concrete in spirituality. If you're someone who doesn't really believe in the unseen, check this book out. It might change your mind. So the premise of this book, or or at least how it begins, because I, I have to say that I was brought to this book under the guise of, of something that really wasn't exactly in the book itself, but that this book, the aura of it exudes this message, power versus force. What does that mean? Um, and hopefully I can illustrate that for you in some of these sections I'm going to share with you. Uh, but the premise, the basis of this book is based on this clinical research that this guy did. And actually it, it predates him because he took the concepts from another researcher who was trying to test, um, he was doing, so, so this book begins, let's, let's start it off. So this book begins with, they figure out, it was in the late 1970s, Dr. John Diamond, he took this work that had previously been done by a guy named Dr. George Goodhart, who pioneered the specialty he called applied kinesiology. Now, if you're not familiar, kinesiology is the study of muscles and their movements, especially as applied to physical conditioning, kinesis, movement, etc. The study of kinesiology first received scientific attention in the second half of the last century, through the work of this guy, Dr. George Goodhart. So, he found that benign physical stimuli, for instance, beneficial nutritional supplements, would increase the strength of certain indicator muscles, whereas inimical stimuli would cause those muscles to suddenly weaken. The implication was that at a level far below conceptual consciousness, the body knew and through muscle testing was able to signal what was good and bad for it. This to me is fascinating. So the classic example they, they give in this, in this book, in the, in the foreword actually, is universally, it has been universally observed, weakening of indicator muscles in the presence of a chemical sweetener like sucralose or um, uh, what is a, a spar- aspartame, etc. The same muscles strengthen in the presence of a healthful natural supplement. So that's really fascinating. And it goes on to say in this book that it didn't actually, the body didn't have to take it in. You could have just held the substance in your hand at about the level of your solar plexus and you could be tested and the body would go strong or weak given 
the various substance that you were holding. So that work by Dr. George Goodhart was then taken by Dr. John Diamond, and he he refined it into a new discipline he called behavioral kinesiology. So now Dr. Diamond's startling discovery was that indicator muscles would strengthen or weaken in the presence of positive or negative emotional and intellectual stimuli, as well as physical stimuli, i.e. a smile will make you test strong, while the statement, I hate you, will make you test weak. So, before I go further, the tests are pretty simple. What is a kinesiological test? You might have even done this at some point in your life. I know I have in very odd moments. Um, (laughs) But so it takes two people to perform a kinesiological test. Choose a friend or family member for testing. We'll call him or her your subject. So step one, have the subject stand erect, right arm relaxed at his side, left arm held out parallel to the floor elbow straight you may use to use you may use the other arm if you wish so you're standing up and you raise your left or right arm straight out in front of you parallel to the ground with your elbow straight step two face your subject and place your left hand on his right shoulder to steady him Then place your right hand on the subject's extended left arm just above the wrist. Step three, tell the subject you are going to try to push his arm down as he resists with all his strength. You see where this is going. Step four, now push down on his arm fairly quickly, firmly, and evenly. The idea is to push just hard enough to test the spring and bounce in the arm, but not so hard that the muscle becomes fatigued. It is not a question of who is stronger, but of whether the muscle can lock the shoulder joint against the push. So assuming there's no physical problem with the muscle and the subject uh, is in a normal and relaxed state of mind, receiving no extraneous stimuli, the muscle will test strong or weak given the given stimulus. So... That, that in itself is fascinating to me. The idea that the, your physiology, your physical body will, will test or perform strong or weak given various intellectual stimuli. A smile will make you test stronger. Someone telling you I hate you will make you test weaker. This makes sense. To me, it really makes sense. You know, this this all goes in uh, correlation to, you know, positive affirmations, um, prayer, meditation. So, what Dr. David Hawkins did was he basically said, I'm going to take the concept of this kinesiological testing method and I'm going to put it to consciousness and spiritual concepts and what he did was through these tests he mapped out all the levels of consciousness 
and the strength therein at each level of consciousness. Now, how does that tie into power verse force? Well, that's that's sort of the mysticism of this book and a reason you should definitely read it because it's deep and it's vast and it, it it's it's mind-blowing in everything that he uncovers. So, here we go as we venture into this world of power versus force. Um so you may think to yourself, wow, that's that's pretty fascinating. If you've ever read the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, that book he's stumbling onto a very similar idea, which is that our physical body, but much less our physical body, something about the electricity that moves through our nervous system and our subconscious mind knows the answers to things well before our conscious mind comes to them. Call it intuition, call it gut instinct. We are all tapped into a very sub, I would say subprimal level of understanding and intuiting of the world around us. That's what this book is really here to illustrate. And so Dr. David Hawkins suggests that our physiology, our nervous system, our, our sub-physical body that operates just below our conscious mind has an understanding and a discernment of what is good and bad for us well before our conscious mind is able to come to the same conclusion. So that, that is a big basis of the work in this book. So from there, let's get into how he's mapped out consciousness. And this, this is really fascinating. So <clears throat> through these kinesiological tests, testing the body given these various conceptual, spiritual stimuli, the body does not te start testing strong until the level of 200. So before I get into that, let me give you the sort of the, the step ladder of consciousness and the levels of human consciousness. So it is very important to remember that the calibration figures do not represent an arithmetic, but a logarithmic progression. Thus, the level 300 is not twice the amplitude of 150, it is 300 to the 10th power. Therefore, an increase of even a few points represents a major advance in power. The rate of increase in power as we move up the scale is therefore enormous. Millions of calibrations over the years of this study have defined a range of values accurately corresponding to well-recognized sets of attitudes and emotions localized by specific attractor energy fields. There's a lot of this talk in the book, energy fields, attractor patterns, such as electromagnetic fields gather iron fillings. 
We have adopted the following classification of these energy fields so as to be easily comprehensible as well as clinically and subjectively accurate. So the ways the various levels of human consciousness express themselves are profound and far-reaching. Their effects are both gross and subtle. All levels below 200 are destructive of life in both the individual and society at large. In contrast, all levels above 200 are are constructive expressions of power. The decisive level of 200 is the fulcrum that divides the general areas of force or falsehood from power or truth. So this is how it all gets tied in. So zero is dead. One is the level of just being alive. So he's calibrated consciousness on on a scale from one to 1,000. So the very lowest energy levels at a level of 20 is shame. From there, it goes up to 30, which is living is guilt. Energy level 50 is apathy. 75, grief. Energy level 100 is fear. Now, much of the world's population, much of the global population he illustrates in this book is functioning at a consciousness level of that of fear. This is a big issue and it explains a lot of the 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 things we're seeing around us, especially in this time of coronavirus. He goes on to say about fear, At the level of 100, there is a lot more life energy available. Fear of danger is actually healthy. Fear runs much of the world, spurring on endless activity. Fear of enemies, of old age or death, of rejection, and a multitude of social fears are basic motivators in most people's lives. From the viewpoint of this level, the world looks hazardous full of traps and threats. Fear is the favored official tool for control by oppressive totalitarian agencies and regimes. And insecurity is the stock in trade of major manipulators of the marketplace. The media and advertising play to fear to increase market share. The proliferation of fears is as limitless as the human imagination. Once fear becomes one's focus, the endless fearful events of the world feed it. Fear becomes obsessive and may take any form. Fear of loss of relationship leads to jealousy and a chronically high stress level. Fearful thinking can balloon into paranoia or generate neurotic defensive structures and, because it is contagious, become a dominant social trend. Does that sound familiar? Fear limits growth of the personality and leads to inhibition. Because it takes energy to rise above fear, the oppressed are unable to reach a higher level unaided. Thus, the fearful seek strong leaders who appear to have conquered their fear to lead them out of their slavery. There's a lot to digest there. I felt that was important to read. So as you move above fear, you get to the energy level of 125, which is that of desire. Desire is another fascinating aspect of human consciousness. 
Desire motivates vast areas of human activity, including the economy. Advertisers play on our desire to program us with needs linked to instinctual drives. Desire moves us to expend great effort to achieve goals or obtain rewards. It's fascinating, isn't it? I myself, I know that I have functioned at various times in my life within each of these sectors. So once you move past desire, you get to the energy level of 150, which is anger. And he says something very interesting about anger. I think anger, it's its worth sitting on anger for a moment. Because he goes on to say, Although anger may lead to homicide and war, as an energy level within itself, it is much further removed from death than those below it. Anger can lead to either constructive or destructive action. As people move out of apathy and grief to overcome fear as a way of life, they begin to want. Desire leads to frustration. Yes. (laughs) Which in turn leads to anger. Thus, anger can be a fulcrum by which the oppressed are eventually catapulted to freedom. Anger over social injustice, bingo. Victimization and inequality has created great movements that led to major changes in the structure of society. But anger expresses itself most often as resentment and revenge and is therefore volatile and dangerous. Anger as a lifestyle is exemplified by irritable, explosive people who are oversensitive to slights and become injustice collectors, quarrelsome, belligerent, or litigious. Since anger stems from frustrated want, it is based on the energy field below it. Very interesting. Frustration results from exaggerating the importance of desires. The angry person may, like a frustrated infant, go into a rage. Anger leads easily to hatred, which has an obviously erosive effect on all areas of a person's life. So anger can be used. It's a tool, isn't it? It can be a tool for the oppressed to catapult themselves out of oppression. I think that's fascinating. So once you move above the energy level 150 where anger resides, you hit the energy level of 175, which is pride. Now remember, until you get to the energy level of 200, you're still in a life-destructive pattern. So this is all, he breaks, he breaks everything down into life-supporting, life-giving, and life-draining, energy-starving. So this is the difference between power versus force. Power is above the level of 200. Force functions somewhere under the level of 200. If you're looking at the consciousness map. So pride is the level 175. It's just before you get into level 200, which is courage. So this is really fascinating. Pride, which calibrates at 175, 
It is the level aspired to by the majority of our kind today. People feel positive as they reach this level. In contrast to the lower energy fields, this rise in self-esteem is a balm to all the pain experienced at lower levels of consciousness. Pride looks good and knows it. It struts its stuff in the parade of life. Pride is at a far enough removal from shame, guilt, or fear that to rise, for instance, out of the despair of the ghetto to the pride of being a marine is an enormous jump. Pride as such generally has a good reputation and is socially encouraged. Yet, as we see from the chart of the levels of consciousness, it is sufficiently negative to remain below the critical level of 200. The problem, as we all know, is that pride goeth before a fall. Pride is defensive and vulnerable because it is dependent upon external conditions. The inflated ego is vulnerable to attack. Pride remains weak because it can be knocked off its pedestal back into shame, which is the threat that fires the fear of loss of pride. Pride is divisive and gives rise to factionalism. The consequences are costly. Man has habitually died for pride. Armies still regularly slaughter each other for that aspect of pride called nationalism. Religious wars, political terrorism, and zealotry, the ghastly history of the Middle East and Central Europe, are all the price of pride, which all of society pays. The downside of pride, therefore, is arrogance and denial. So we can all understand and it, it resonates. As Isn't it interesting how pride is one of the seven deadly sins? And it's interesting, he acknowledges that there are some positive aspects of pride in many ways in our culture. It is encouraged. And I think you should always take pride in your work. However, what is that pride made of? Is it dependent on the external successes? of your life, etc. So as we move out of pride, we move into the energy level of 200. And now we are in that anabolic, life-supporting, life-giving energy. Sorry about that. We're into that life-supporting, life-giving energy, anabolic. And that is the level of courage where power really first appears. When we test subjects at all the energy levels below 200, we find, as can be readily verified, that they all go weak. Everyone goes strong in response to the life-supportive fields above 200. This is the critical level that distinguishes the positive and negative influences of life. At the level of courage, an attainment of true power occurs. I talked about this earlier. When someone reaches the consciousness level or the, the energy level of 200 and courage becomes a part of their functioning mechanism, what is happening there? You are taking responsibility for your life. You are becoming accountable and responsible for your life as you know it, as an individual. And then, only then, can you begin to aspire to your true and highest greatness as an individual. 
So I don't want to spend too much more time on the maps, the map of consciousness, but I think it's important to move up into a thousand and show you guys just the the steps on the ladder as we get to a thousand. So from courage, you move to the energy level of 250, which is neutrality. Neutrality, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it seems vague in its wording. Um, but he says here, energy becomes very positive as we get to the level that we have termed neutral because it is epitomized by release from the positionality that typifies lower levels. Below 250, consciousness tends to see dichotomies and to take on rigid positions, an impediment in a world that is complex and multifactorial rather than black and white. So you get to a state of neutrality. You are positionless. You are not affected by the polarization of the external world of our culture, which is a very good thing. So moving out of neutrality, you get to the energy level 310, which is willingness. This very positive level of energy may be seen as the gateway to the higher levels. Whereas, for instance, jobs are done adequately at the neutral level. At the level of willingness, work is done well and success in all endeavors is common. Growth is rapid. These are people chosen for advancement. Willingness implies that one has overcome inner resistance to life and is committed to participation. Are you willing? Are you willing to participate in life? What is your level of willingness? At this level, self-esteem is innately high and is reinforced by positive feedback from society in the forms of recognition, appreciation, and reward. Willingness is sympathetic and responsive to the needs of others. Willing people are builders of and contributors to society. With their capacity to bounce back from adversity and learn from experience, they tend to become self-correcting. This is a very powerful place to be. As we move up out of willingness, we reach the energy level of 350, which is that of acceptance. At this level of awareness, a major transformation takes place with the understanding that one is oneself, the source and creator of the experience of one's life. Taking such responsibility is distinctive of this degree of evolution, characterized by the capacity to live harmoniously with the forces of life. All people at levels below 200 tend to be powerless and see themselves as victims at the mercy of life. This stems from a belief that the source of one's happiness or the cause of one's problems is quote-unquote out there. An enormous jump taking back one's own power is completed at this level with the realization that the source of happiness is within oneself. Acceptance is not to be confused with passivity, which is a symptom of apathy. This form of acceptance allows engagement in life on life's own terms, without trying to make it conform to an agenda. With acceptance, there is emotional calm and perception is widened as denial is transcended. 
one now sees things without distortion or misinterpretation. Moving up from the level of acceptance, we reach the energy level 400, which is reason. Intelligence and rationality rise to the forefront when the emotionalism of the lower levels is transcended. Reason is capable of handling large, complex amounts of data, making rapid, correct decisions, understanding the intricacies of relationships, gradations, and fine distinctions, and expert manipulation of symbols as abstract concepts, which becomes increasingly important. This is the level of science, medicine, and of generally increased capability for conceptualization and comprehension. Knowledge and education are sought as capital. Understanding and information are the main tools of accomplishment, which is the hallmark of the 400 level. This is the level of Nobel Prize winners, great statesmen, and Supreme Court justices. Einstein, Freud, and many of the other great thinkers of history also calibrate here. The authors of the great books of the Western world calibrate here. The shortcomings, however, of this level are the failure to clearly distinguish the difference between symbols and what they represent, and confusion between the objective and subjective worlds that limits the understanding of causality. At this level, it is easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees, to become infatuated with concepts and theories ending up in intellectualism and missing the essential point. It's been my observation that I feel much of the Western world is suffering from this exact issue right here. We're trapped in a paradigm of reason and intellectualism. And it blinds to it blinds one to the grander picture of what's happening of what is at stake so as we move up out of the level of reason we get to the energy level of 500 which is love love as depicted in the mass media is not what this level implies on the contrary what the world generally refers to as love is an intense emotionality combining physical attraction, possessiveness, control, addiction, eroticism, and novelty. It is usually evanescent and fluctuating, waxing and waning with varying conditions. When frustrated, this emotion often reveals an underlying anger and dependency that it had masked. That love can turn to hate is a common concept. But what is being spoken about rather than love is an addictive sentimentality and attachment. Hate stems from pride, not love. There probably never was actual love in such a relationship. So this love, the 500 level love, is characterized by the development of a love that is unconditional, unchanging, and permanent. It does not fluctuate because its source within the person who loves is not dependent on external conditions. Loving is a state of being. It is a way of relating to the world that is forgiving, nurturing, and supportive. Love is not intellectual and does not proceed from the mind. Love emanates from the heart. 
that has the capacity to lift others and accomplish great feats because of its purity of motive. I've said, I've found, I've experienced in my life after football that the only true reason any of us should be doing anything is for the fucking love of it. It's because it just emanates from our heart. Now that's not always easy in the, on the surface level of functioning in various things. But can you love what you do? Do you wake up every day and you just love it? You don't even care that you're getting paid for it or that you're not getting paid for it. You just do it because it's fucking, it's what your spirit is destined to do. It's what you're here to do. To me, that's what this love is about. Love takes no position and thus is global, rising above the separation of positionality. It is then possible to be one with another, as there are no longer any barriers. Love is therefore inclusive and expands the sense of self progressively. This is the level of true happiness, but although the world is fascinated with the subject of love and all viable religions calibrate at 500 or over, it is interesting to note that only 4.0% of the world's population ever reaches this level of the evolution of consciousness. Only 0.4% ever reaches the level of unconditional love at 540. So as we move and we... We, we continue to ascend. We get to the energy level 540, which is that of joy. As love becomes more and more unconditional, it begins to be experienced as inner joy. This is not the sudden joy of a pleasurable turn of events. It is a constant accompaniment to all activities. Joy arises from within each moment of existence rather than from any external source. 540 is also the level of healing and of spiritually based self-help groups. From level 540 and up is the domain of saints, spiritual healers, and advanced spiritual students. Characteristic of this energy field is the capacity for enormous patience and the persistence of a positive attitude in the face of prolonged adversity. The hallmark of this state is compassion. People who have attained this level have a notable effect on others. They are capable of a prolonged open visual gaze, which induces a state of love and peace. Near-death experiences characteristically transformative in their effect have frequently allowed people to experience the energy level between 540 and 600. Oh, this is important here. When he says, At the high 500s, the world one sees is illuminated by the exquisite beauty and perfection of creation. Everything happens effortlessly by synchronicity, and the world and everything in it is seen to be an expression of love and divinity. Individual will merges into divine will 
A presence is felt whose power facilitates phenomena outside conventional expectations of reality. Termed miraculous by the ordinary observer, these phenomena represent the power of the energy field, not that of the individual. Pretty powerful stuff. So as we move past the energy level 540, that of joy, we get to the energy level 600, which is peace. This energy field is associated with the experience designated by such terms as transcendence, self-realization, and God consciousness. It is extremely rare. When this state is reached, the distinction between subject and object disappears and there is no specific focal point of perception. Not uncommonly, individuals at this level remove themselves from the world as the state of bliss that ensues precludes ordinary activity. Some become spiritual teachers, others work anonymously for the betterment of mankind. A few become great geniuses in their respective fields and make major contributions to society. These people are saintly and may eventually be designated officially as saints, although at this level, formal religion is commonly transcended to be replaced by the pure spirituality out of which all religion originates. Perception at the level of 600 and above is sometimes reported as occurring in slow motion suspended in time and space. Great works of art, music, and architecture that calibrate between 600 and 700 can transport us temporarily to higher levels of consciousness and are universally recognized as inspirational and timeless. So very few of us reach these high levels of consciousness. Even the levels of love and joy, I mean, to be in that continuously, what a challenge. That is, in my opinion, that is the great challenge of my life. Can I continuously live with compassion, especially in this time? So as you move past level 600, that of peace, which I believe... He says in here, Gandhi was calibrated at the level of 600 or above. You get to the energy level 700 to 1000, which are pure enlightenment. This is the level of the great ones of history who originated the spiritual patterns that multitudes have followed throughout the ages. Jesus, Buddha, Shiva, these great. The ascended ones, the ascended masters, of the, as they have been referred to, all are associated with divinity with which they are often identified. This is the level of powerful inspiration. These beings set in place attractor energy fields that influence all of mankind down through the ages. At this level, there is no longer the experience of an individual personal self as separate from others. Rather, there is an identification of self with consciousness and divinity. The unmanifest is experienced as self beyond mind. This transcendence of the ego also serves by example to teach others how it can eventually be accomplished. This is the peak of the evolution of consciousness in the human realm. So here we go. Here's, here's what he 
Great works of art depicting individuals who have reached the level of enlightenment characteristically show the teacher with a specific hand position called the mudra. This is the act of the transmission of this energy field to the consciousness of mankind. This level of divine grace calibrates up to 1,000, the highest level attained by any persons who have lived in recorded history, to wit, the great avatars for whom the title Lord is appropriate, Lord Krishna, Lord Buddha, and Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it. That is, that is the basic map of consciousness that he... David Hawkins and through years and years of this testing and the calibration of these various spiritual stimuli, conceptual stimuli to map out these levels of consciousness, that is the basic structure of what this book sort of revolves around. So that's all really interesting, right? But then how does that interact with, or how does that, what does that mean in terms of how does it help you in your daily life or, or in giving us a greater context or understanding of the world around us? Well, I've, I've pulled a few excerpts from this that I think are really important. The first one I wanted to share was I wanted to illustrate for you the difference between power versus force, at least the difference as defined in this book. So there's a lot there's a lot to unpack, but the basics are this. On examination, we will see that power arises from meaning. It has to do with motive and it has to do with principle. Power is always associated with that which supports the significance of life itself. It appeals to that in human nature which we call noble, in contrast to force which appeals to that which we call crass. Power appeals to that which uplifts, dignifies, and ennobles. Force must always be justified, whereas power requires no justification. Force is associated with the partial, power with the whole. If we analyze the nature of force, it becomes readily apparent why it must always succumb to power. This is in accordance with one of the basic laws of physics, because force automatically creates counterforce. Its effect is limited by definition. We could say that force is a movement. It goes from here to there, or tries to, against opposition. Power, on the other hand, stands still. It is like a standing field that does not move. Gravity itself, for instance, does not move against anything. Its power moves all objects within its field, but the gravity field itself does not move. Force always moves against something, whereas power does not move against anything. Force is intrinsically incomplete and therefore has to constantly be fed energy. Power is total and complete in and of itself, 
and requires nothing from outside of itself. It makes no demands, it has no needs. Because force has an insatiable appetite, it constantly consumes. Power, in contrast, energizes, gives forth, supplies, and supports. Power gives life and energy, force takes these away. We notice that power is associated with compassion and makes us feel positively about ourselves. Force is associated with judgmentalism and tends to make us feel badly about ourselves. So that right there, that just gives you a, a good definition of what, what are we talking about here. When you're talking about power versus force, you're talking about two elements of the universe, two things that are occurrences. Power is life-supporting. Force is life-taking. So, as I, as I begin to wrap this up, I know that was a lot of information there. But there are some really brilliant little insights that I wanted to share from various chapters in this book. Uh, which I thought were very poignant and, and meant a lot, especially in this moment we find ourselves in with massive upheaval, uh, great, the great veils of perception falling around our systems of civilization, be it medicine, be it judicial, etc. The, the veil of truth is coming very much into the forefront of our consciousness and our understanding of this world that we live in. And the dream, the illusion, seems to be crumbling. Which is a beautiful thing, but it can also be very painful. It's very difficult. There's a lot of people in a lot of pain, and I'm not talking about people who are sick with coronavirus. I'm talking about people who are in a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort. All of which deserve compassion. And really at the end of the day, that's all that all that matters. All that I can possibly conceive fucking matters at all is to have compassion for everyone going through all this shit. So one of my favorite things he says, In a universe where like goes to like and birds of a feather flock together, we attract to us that which we emanate. Consequences may come in an unsuspected way. For instance, we are kind to the elevator man, and a year later a helpful stranger gives us a hand on a deserted highway. An observable this does not cause an observable that. Instead, in reality, a shift in motive or behavior acts on a field that then produces an increased likelihood of positive responses. Our inner work is like building up a bank account, but one from which we cannot draw at our own personal will. The disposition of the funds is determined by a subtle energy field, which awaits a trigger to release this power back into our lives. Fuck, that's powerful. Fuck. Everything matters. Remember that? Everything you do, every act, every behavior that you 
emanate into the world. It matters. Let it sink. Feel that. Okay, here we go. What's next? For our purposes, it is really only necessary to recognize that power is that which makes you go strong while force makes you go weak. Love, compassion, and forgiveness, which may be mistakenly seen by some as submissive, are in fact profoundly empowering. Revenge, judgmentalism, and condemnation, on the other hand, inevitably make you go weak. Therefore, regardless of moral righteousness, it is a simple clinical fact that in the long run, the weak cannot prevail against the strong. That which is weak falls of its own accord. Individuals of great power throughout human history have been those who have totally aligned themselves with powerful attractors. Again and again, they have stated that the power they manifested was not of themselves or of their own making. All attributed the source of the power to something greater than themselves. I think that's a really powerful point. You know, in this idea that it's just being open to the universe and understanding how the energy flows. Here's another one. One basic principle has the power to resolve the problems of the social marketplace. Support the solution instead of attacking the supposed causes. Attack is in itself inherently a very weak attractor pattern, that of 150, leading through fear to intimidation, coercion, and eventually moral corruption. The quote-unquote vice squad becomes just that, turning city streets into jungles of crime. Objective examination reveals that most intractable social problems appear unsolvable due to the persistence of either sentimentality or juvenile moralizing. Neither of these positions is based on truth and therefore all approaches proceeding from them are weak. Falsehood makes us all go weak. Acting from false positions typically results in the use of force. Force is the universal substitute for truth. The gun and the nightstick are evidence of weakness. The need to control others stems from lack of power, just as vanity stems from lack of self-esteem. Punishment is a form of violence, an ineffectual substitute for power. When, as in our society, the punishment rarely fits the crime, it can hardly be effectual. Punishment is based on revenge at the weak energy level of 150. Hmm. Powerful. There was another one that I am hoping to pull.
I'll finish it off with this. The initial effect of taking responsibility for the truth of one's life is to raise lower, g- lower energy field levels to 200, the critical level at which power first appears, and the stepping stone to all of the higher levels. The courage to face truth leads eventually to acceptance, where greater power arises at the level of 350. Here, then, there is sufficient energy to solve the majority of man's social problems. This, in turn, leads to the yet greater power available at 500, the level of love. Knowing our own and everyone else's human foibles gives rise to forgiveness and thence to compassion. Compassion is the doorway to grace, to the final realization of who we are and why we are here and the ultimate source of all existence. Fuck, that's powerful. So there you have it, folks. Power versus force. Once again, I highly recommend it. I This podcast in and of itself, I wanted to just give you a little bit of an introduction to what's happening here and, and the information that's being put forth. I think it's incredibly important in this day and age, this book was written in, let's see, this book was published in 1995 first, and I would say its relevance is deeply more evident in this day and age right now. So do yourself a favor, pick this thing up. One of the great quotes from this, I'll leave you with a couple great quotes he has. This one goes, What the addict is seeking is not to be ashamed of. The whole spiritual world wants to reach that blissful state of consciousness. Change your technique, not your aspiration. The state doesn't have to be sought. It is always within us. So there you have it, folks. Power versus force, the hidden determinants of human behavior written by the great and powerful Dr. David R. Hawkins. I highly recommend it. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Let me know your thoughts because I'd like to do, there's a a few other books I, I have in mind that I think this would be very much worth Uh, an entire podcast on so that being said lots of love to all of you guys hang in there hey if you can try to live with a little more compassion and understanding but it begins as is stated in this book which i said on a podcast yesterday it begins with the integrity of the self within you Integrity, understanding, compassion. If we could all do that on an individual level in our lives and give that, put that forth into the universe around each one of us, this is going to, we're going to make a major impact. Lots of love to you. Until next time, I am Evan Britton. 
and this is the Ebb and Flow Podcast. I'm out. Peace.